Hello, regeneration. Um, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm, I'm hoping that number is getting less and less as I show up here more frequently, my name is Chris Ion, and I'm the, the head of student ministries here at Regen. It's good to be back here with you celebrating this time of Lent as we lead up to Easter. Let's say a prayer as we open up God's words today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time today to open your word. Lord, I ask that you move in us to help us understand your word and that its messages be written on our hearts. Lord, thank you for the volunteers who are here helping make this service possible and for the technology that you have given us to still be able to join together and share your word. Lord, we thank you for this time of Lent that we can spend time with you remembering the sacrifice your son made for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Growing up in Chicago, there's a, a large Catholic population. And I myself, though not Catholic, have, have spent my fair amount of time in Catholic churches and cathedrals, whether for weddings or, or funerals, christenings, first communions. And one thing that you will see in almost every church or cathedral, Catholic church or cathedral, is a series of icons called the Stations of the Cross. There are 14 of them, and there's a, a, an accompanying prayer with each. As a kid, I didn't really understand the reason for these depictions. I knew the story, but I kind of found it a little gruesome to have these pictures up in a church. See, as a kid, I didn't understand the importance of the crucifixion. I understood intellectually that it was important that Jesus died for our salvation, but, but I didn't understand the importance of, of how his death played out. One of these stations, the, the fifth station in the Catholic Church, depicts a man carrying the cross with Jesus. That man was Simon of Cyrene, and he, and, and his relationship to Jesus, is going to be the focus of this message today. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, let's open them to Matthew 27, 32, where we're first introduced to him. We're going to go through a couple of verses quickly, but we're going to start with Matthew. Matthew 27, 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And then in Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And then Luke 23, 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. A seemingly random encounter, a seemingly random person is pulled out of the crowd. But these are the final few steps, the final few moments on the way to the execution of the Son of God. So we know that there's going to be nothing left to chance here. This is the place where the fulfillment of God's promise will be completed. So God must know that people will read this account again and again, and as eight, Romans 8.28 teaches us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want to take a step back and, and take a closer look at Mark 15.21 for a second. Here, the author makes mention of Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon of Cyrene. Matthew introduced us to Simon. Luke introduces us to Simon. 
Mark introduces us to Simon and his two sons. Why does Mark do that? Why would you say Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus? Why would you say that unless you knew the readers would know who that was? As the author, you're trying to basically sort out this Simon from that Simon. Of course, during this time, there's a lot of different Simons, so it's necessary. But why would you do this reference here unless there was familiarity with the man? One thing that's important to to remember here is Mark wrote this gospel in Rome. And Mark wrote this gospel between 50 and 60 AD. The book of Romans was written right around 56 AD. It is possible that the gospel of Mark was written after the book of Romans so that there's already a church in Rome and there are people in that church that are known, well known. And if we go to Romans 16, 13, we'll meet one of these people. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, an elect man in the Lord, also his mother and mine, Paul says. Simon of Cyrene, Mark writes, and then he says, because he's writing in Rome, and the first readers will be Romans in the Roman church, the father of Rufus and Alexander, who you know. So here we have an unsuspecting stranger plucked out of nowhere to help Jesus carry the cross. We don't know him, and he doesn't know Jesus personally yet, but believe me, he goes all the way to the cross, and and nobody having done that could leave. And so he experiences the full, intimate, and gruesome reality of the painful crucifixion. And somewhere in this process, he follows the story until he embraces embraces the gospel of Christ, whose heavy cross he carried, and it leads all the way to his sons being well-known by the Roman church. Jesus used his moment of suffering to bring someone closer to him. Even in his suffering, Jesus was determined to save those who would otherwise not have been saved. This reality is further exemplified as Luke continues uh, in, in Luke 23, verses 27 through 31. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women's, women, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? It was customary during Jewish funerals for professional mourners who were paid to be there to be present. Uh, And historians tell us that it probably uh, and most likely they were present during high-profile executions. So these were likely paid mourners. Now, this is fascinating because only Luke records this moment where Jesus chastises them and gives a prophetic warning. This is not the first time Jesus has interacted with professional mourners, though, and especially not before, before a resurrection. If we look at Jairus and his daughter, who Jesus raised for the dead, we see a similar situation. The story of Jairus is recorded in the Bible in Mark 5, 22 through 41, and Luke 8, 41 through 56. When they got there, the mourners were wailing and weeping, but Jesus asked them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And then it continues, the mourners turned into scoffers, laughing and making fun of Jesus. This is in verse 40. Undeterred, Jesus went into the house, taking with him Jairus, his wife, along with Peter, James, and John. So Jesus is familiar with the scoffing nature of paid mourners. 
And though we can't judge the heart of these mourners, Jesus knew their hearts and took a moment to, to turn to them. He knew that they weren't his followers. He could have just ignored them. He could have continued to walk towards his death silently and solemnly. But that's not Jesus. I mean, we think we all know that at this point. So here again, in his moment of, suffer, of immense suffering, walking to his death, Jesus still doesn't think of himself. He thinks of those unbelievers, and he issues them a prophetic warning of things to come. Jesus' mission always was a singular one, to save sinners. I think it's impossible to read uh, this passage around Simon of Cyrene and, and not have it tug at your heart. I often think that when, and I, I know my, I'm guilty of this myself, I often think that when people are reading the, the Bible, they, they tend to get lost kind of in the grandeur of the entire story. And, and it certainly is a, a grand story. I'm not trying to diminish that. But just as God created the tiniest details in our fingerprints, smallest things on earth, and all of them are important, every story in the Bible, every word is of great importance and teaches us a valuable lesson. When I first read the story of Simon of Cyrene, I always focused on Simon burying the cross of Jesus. And I associated that with how we should bear the burdens for others, bear burden for others. And, and this is true. But as I reread the, 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 the passages while preparing for this message, preparing again to talk about this idea of bearing others' burdens, I realized something more important in this story. When I read this story, it points to three things. The humility of God, what it really means to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, and God's mercy. Simon carrying Jesus' cross is our reminder of God's humility. This is an attribute that God does not need, nor is it an attribute that any of us would expect of him. Throughout the Bible, I'm going to list off a number of verses here. Um, we're not going to read through them all, but we'll put them up on the screen so you can reference them. Throughout the Bible, Jesus is often challenged to use his great powers, right? People tell him time and time again, hey, do this, do that. And, and as often as he's told to, he refuses. And, and the reason is simple. In the New Testament, the purpose of miracles is pointed out in a number of uh, different places. It's pointed out to point to truth in Acts 2.22, reveal truth in Luke 11.20, lead to truth in John 10.38, remind of truth in Matthew 11.2-6, give reason for belief in truth, John 20.30-31. Uh, and and they can also, miracles can also be used as a platform for the public declaration of truth. And it's in John 6. Conversely, Miracles are never done for entertainment, Mark 6.20, Luke 23.8, for purely pragmatic reasons, John 2.4, to disprove a critic or to pass a test in Matthew 12, uh, 38 through 42, and Matthew 16, 1 through 4, when there's massive, rampant unbelief. It's not, they're not used. They're not used to alleviate one's personal suffering, which is in Mark 4. They're not used for one's own comfort in, in, in Mark 11. And they're not used for those who will not share in the future of the kingdom. And they're also not used when they disrupt Jesus' saving mission. And they're certainly never used for re revenge. 
So there's a lot of reasons that Jesus refuses to perform miracles. And Jesus' refusal to perform the miraculous here is important to our understanding of this scene with Simon of Cyrene. Jesus came into the world with a clear purpose and a clear plan to complete. Whenever use of his supernatural powers detracts from his, he refuses to perform miracles. We probably more clearly align um, with those who would shout at Jesus to come off the cross or, or tell him to send a legion of angels to rescue himself. At the very least, we might expect that he can carry his own cross, right? It wouldn't even be that impressive of a miracle uh, next to everything else that he's done. To us, it would make sense for God to flex his omnipotent muscle here uh, during these moments of agony, and, and yet he does not. This withholding is the very nature of Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Shockingly, Jesus in this story allows a man he created to help him carry the cross. The strange, comforting, beautiful, mysterious thing about God is that his ways aren't our ways. When we want a sign, he might not choose to give it to us. When we want a miracle, God may tell us to suffer more. And, and Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's willingness to associate with the lowly is more than a simple arbitrary choice. God willingly condescends to us in order to grant us a glimpse into what real faith looks like. Jesus was divine. He didn't actually need human help. He could have chosen to do it all by himself, to suffer and die without Simon's help. And yet, in perfect humility, Jesus understands it is God's will that he accepts this momentary aid of Simon. He permits Simon to carry his cross. He doesn't turn him away. Jesus accepts his weakness in this moment as a greater part of God's plan. Jesus doesn't need us to carry the cross. He doesn't need Simon to carry the cross, but we need to carry our cross in order to become Christians. Christ exempts us from sin and from suffering for eternally, eternally for sin, but he doesn't exempt us from sorrow. Before his arrest and betrayal, Jesus said to his would-be followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but, for, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he, when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. To be a Christian is to live a cruciform life. A kind of existence that is shaped by and through the cross. We 
bear the cross Jesus provides for us. This is precisely what Simon did and precisely what we must do too. As Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of resurrection and his part- and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Even in his moments of suffering, Jesus' heart is for those who would come after them to lay out a path for them to read the story of Simon of Cyrene, to have their hearts melted rather than hardened. In this moment, Jesus uses Simon of Cyrene to provide a very, very real representation of what it means to take up a cross and follow him. Jesus completely suffering in these moments and needing someone to carry the cross with him or, or having someone carry the cross with him was an act of mercy for us. This may sound silly, but it's the truth. When it comes to the crucifixion of our Lord, uh, nothing was left to chance. Every detail has a lot of significance. I believe the Lord had a purpose for Simon. He was God's choice to carry the cross with Jesus the rest of the way. While the soldiers did tie the cross to Jesus, it was Simon who would bring it to Calvary. It was, in fact, the guilty person who carried the cross. The guilty person, though, wasn't Jesus. It was Simon. Simon was the one that needed saving. Simon was not the the only guilty person present. He represented all of humanity. He was likely a Jew, but he was also from a foreign land. When Simon carried the cross, God was reminding us that it was not his son that was the guilty party Simon carried that cross as a representation for all humanity. As the crowds looked at Simon, as we read the story of Simon, we see a picture of ourselves. In that picture, we see a sinful man bearing the burden of his sins. We see the condemnation of God on humanity. God was showing us by having Simon carry the cross that we were the ones that deserved to carry this cross and bear its punishment. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, And for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross was laid on Simon, and he carried the cross behind Jesus. Jesus led Simon to the place of execution. In doing so, he was showing us what we deserve. The penalty for sin is death. Simon followed Jesus to Golgotha, Skull Hill, He, and in turn, we were experiencing firsthand what it was like to be sentenced to death. And he must have felt something of the pain of Jesus as he prepared to lay himself down on the cross. But Simon was given given grace. He would not be the one to lay himself down on that cross. He would not die on that cross. That cross was for Jesus. When Jesus and Simon got to the top of Skull Hill, Simon was still bearing the weight of the cross on his shoulders. But at a certain point, the soldiers would have told him to lay down the cross, to step back, and there Jesus would lie down. He would have nails driven through his hands, and he would be crucified. Jesus used Simon as an act of mercy to show us what we deserve. Jesus used Simon to teach us about the substitutionary death. Jesus died in our place. We are Simon. We stood there with the crossbeam on our shoulders, but we laid it down and Jesus took our place. He took all the pain and agony. He paid the price that we should have paid, that Simon should have paid. 
Our sentence has been carried out. Our penalty has been paid. Jesus took it all on himself. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This scene reminds me of that famous hymn, The Cross Before Me, The World Behind Me, No Turning Back, No Turning Back. As we close out today's sermon, I want us all to remember what Jesus did for us. Not just through Simon to show us the way to the cross, but to remember that once we have started taking the walk towards the cross, we can't turn back. Many reject him. Many reject him. But then there are a few, like Simon of Cyrene, and God plucks them by his grace out of the crowd for divine purposes. And, and he's done that in, in your life, if you belong to him. And whatever little part of kingdom history he's using you to write, one day you will be able to look back with all those in glory and see. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for this story, for, this, for these words. We know, Lord, that everything is done according to your plan, that even those plucked out of the crowd are used for your divine purposes. Lord, we thank you for taking us from the crowd, for walking us to the cross and showing us what we deserve in our sin. We thank you for your son who bore the actual weight of what that cross meant, who bore the actual execution that we deserve. So Lord, we ask you to use us for a purpose and that we remember that the cross is before us the world is behind us, and there's no turning back. In Jesus' name, amen. We take communion now. As we take communion today, I want us to remember really what it, what it means to, to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. But more importantly, I, I want us to remember that because... His body was broken and his blood was spilled. That we are lucky. That we get to lay down the cross, take a step back. So take this communion in remembrance of that fact. As you prepare to take fruit of the vine that represents his blood, I want us to, to think about really how precious that blood was that spilled.